Well, good morning, as I've already said, and uh, we're into week number six on uh, Who is My Neighbor? And I have to say that this, coupled with the life seminar stuff, has uh, caused me to probably think a wee bit. Uh, it's caused uh, my thinking to be stretched a wee bit, uh, and, and I don't think I'm the only one. I think uh, for a lot of us, the the journey in, in Who is My Neighbor, in the series of Who is My Neighbor, and coupled with the life seminars, has uh, stretched us. We, we have asked ourselves some questions, um, like um, how do we view people? Do we, do we compare people? Do we compare ourselves to other people? Do we have time to listen to people? Do we, do we, are we present in our conversations with people? How do, we, how do we view ourselves? David, David took us through that. Uh, how do we view ourselves? Because we can, we can only true, view, truly view other people when we have the right uh, view of ourselves. We've been, we've been challenged and encouraged not to label people or put people into boxes. Uh, and then Amy last week uh, encouraged us to celebrate diversity. We're not really good as a church or as the church globally at celebrating diversity, but the thing that we need to remember is uh, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are all made in the image of God. We are all bearers of his image, and hopefully this stretching uh, of us all to think a wee bit beyond ourselves has been a positive experience. I'm not sure... um, Sometimes I think it's been a wee bit challenging, but um, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? When we, we started into this series, caused me to, to do a little bit of a study of how much and what time and where do I spend most of my week. And uh, I started to break it down on paper, and uh, seemingly we spend a third of our time in bed, um, uh, you know, there's multiple. We, we spend two hours a day now on social media. That's the, the latest. Um, and all these uh, statistics, and you're trying to divide it all down. And, and I have come to the realization that um, I spend a lot of my time with people who are made in the image of Christ, and yet they don't know him. That's, that's what, where, where I have found that. Uh, and so it's asked me the question, who actually is my neighbor. We have taken that question from Luke chapter 10, where the, the, the young expert in the law comes to Jesus and uh, asks, who is my neighbor? But the question I have to leave, I have to ask myself is, as Jesus interacted with people every day, how did he leave people? Did he leave them... Uh, with a fresh taste in their mind, or did he leave them um, with just a negative experience of what the kingdom of God is like? Puma, during the week we were, uh, I'm just going to change this over, Jason, if that's all right. And, and Puma and I were out uh, on Wednesday night just for a short while together. And Puma was sharing with us part of his story that when he was at university, there was a guy that was at university with him, and he was a Christian. And, um, and he had a huge impact on Puma's life. 
And it's not so much of what he preached or said to Puma, but it was actually the way he lived out his life. I'm not sure that's often the words that are spoken today. Often we find in society that people come away talking to Christians or coming away interacting with Christians, often with a very sad experience. Sometimes they feel judged. Sometimes they feel labeled. Sometimes they can feel unworthy because that Christian or that person hasn't really taken time to listen to them. Sometimes people who aren't Christians come away with the feeling that they're an outsider and you know what, I'm never going to be good enough to be uh, in your club. That's not the way I see Jesus left people. Jesus left people with this sense that he cared, that they were valued because he stopped and listened and and, and left them with a sense of hope because they were helped in some sort of way. And all this is what I label under the challenging, stretching stuff that has really stretched me and challenged me. How do I live my life every day? And who really is my neighbor? The Good Samaritan, as I said, is, comes from the story of Luke chapter 10, where Jesus uh, tells this story. He makes up the story in his mind. He, he, he has a purpose in doing it. It's not a true story, but he's made up this story. But I love, I love the way that Luke, the book, the book of Luke is, uh, is laid out. Because in chapter 9, we read that Jesus has this urgency that he needs to go to Jerusalem, that he needs to get on with getting to Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and so what he does is he, he sends some of the disciples on ahead of him. And uh, and they come back with this report. Um, it's um, who comes back, James and John, I think. Or anyway, some of the disciples come back with this report and say, "You know what? We went to some Samaritan villages or places where the Samaritans live, and uh, they didn't accept what we had to say. They didn't believe what we had to say, and uh, and uh, they rejected." the message that we had to carry. And, uh, and so they come back to Jesus and they say to Jesus, you know, what, what can we do with them? What, what will we do with these people? Is it okay if we call down fire and just burn them off the earth? And we read that Jesus rebukes them. He has a firm word with them and he says, guys, that's not on. That's not the way I operate. That's not the way I do things. And we read that they moved on uh, to another village. In chapter 10, then, we read the story of the Good Samaritan. This, this story, this lawyer, this young person comes to Jesus in his quest, in his, just in this anguish and this desire to know what he must do to have eternal life. And when Jesus tells this story, I think it's very funny that he, he tells a story of what it is to love your neighbor. But who does he use as the hero in this story? He uses the smart. And uh, you might, you might not, your mind not, might not work in that way, but that's the way my mind works. The people who have rejected uh, Jesus' story earlier, he's, they are the type of people 
that Jesus uses to be the heroes within his story. And so uh, what Jesus does is he simply shows the young expert in the law. When he asks the question, who is my neighbor? He says, it's the people you come across every day. Even those who oppose you, even those who have rejected you in the past. You know, it's easy to love people who love us in return. It's easy to accept people who have an acceptance on their side. But what about the people who reject us? Will we still go the extra mile and love them? But quick on the heels of this story of the Good Samaritan, Neil has already alluded to it this morning, is the story of Mary and Martha. Um, and we have Mary and Martha ministries on Saturday. And, uh, but Mary and Martha, straight after this story, we read that Martha invites Jesus into her home. And, um, and I just want to quickly interject here with this story. It's not really part, but I think it's got a part to play in the whole message. Mary, or Martha invites Jesus. Martha is the one who invites Jesus into her home. And, uh, and we read later on in that story that Jesus is in their home, and there's probably a bit of a few people that have come with them. We call them an entourage of some sort. And, uh, and Mary starts to get busy. She starts to get distracted. There's so many things that have to be done. And we read that Jesus rebukes her. And says, you know what, Martha, you are the one who invited me into your home. You're the one who asked me to come in here. And yet you do not have time to listen to me. You don't have time like what Mary has to sit at my feet. And sometimes that's a bit like us, isn't it? We have all the time in the world to invite him in our lives. But how much time actually do we have to sit and wait and listen on him? And so uh, I think it's important that the story of the Good Samaritan and the young lawyer is set in the midst of this fact that, that an intellectual man, a man who intellect and information is important to, this story is set in the midst of that and that the end of the story is a person who is busy. And oftentimes in our quest for God, our hunger for God, our desire to get to know God more, we have inherited or we have taken up this idea that we either go two ways. One is we go down the road of intellect and information. Information is great and intellect is great, but it will never, never, you will never know Jesus through that. It's only in a true relationship with him will you ever get to know him. And the second thing that we do is I want to know Jesus more, I want to love him more, we decide to take on this role of busyness. I must be busy. I must do. I must, I must, I must. The Bible speaks clearly against laziness. It speaks clearly against loathfulness. It speaks clearly against idleness. But it also speaks clearly about rest. And we need to be a people who learn to rest. We need to be a people who learn to sit at the feet of Jesus. The other passage of scripture which has been important to us as we have gone through this, um, uh, who is my neighbor, is Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus has risen from the dead. He hasn't ascended up into heaven yet. He's there uh, encouraging his disciples. He's there with these uh, men who are clearly full of fear, who can't see beyond themselves at this present moment in time. Their lives have been shaken and tossed upside down. It seems like everything they had put their hope in is gone. Everything they had trusted in is gone. They can't at this present moment see beyond themselves. And yet they're the ones that Jesus has entrusted and invested and probably relying on to do the Great Commission, to live out this Great Commission. These were the men who were to carry on the work. Acts refers to them as ignorant, unlearned, and unequipped men. One writer says they were fearful cowards struggling with their identity and insecurity, hiding behind locked doors in fear of their lives, wondering what on earth they were meant to do or what on earth was going to happen next. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus takes these men, sees exactly where they're at, and still sees what the potential is. And that's the same with us today. No matter where you find yourself this week or in this season of life, Jesus doesn't see just where you're at. He doesn't even see where you're at in your sin. He sees what the potential is within you, what he has called over your life. And in Acts chapter 1, I read this story many times to Amelia Um, And in Acts chapter 1, she always says, read the part where Jesus is going up to heaven. And there's a picture in the book, and you can see the disciples. It's a cartoon, but it's, it's, uh, it's pretty effective. And you can see in their faces and this lostness, this orphaned spirit in them, as Jesus is ascending up to heaven. They're standing there like this. What on earth are we meant to do next? Standing, holding the Great Commission. Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the earth. And the kind of, when we've taken on life seminars and thought about the idea of who is my neighbor, sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming, just to be honest. Because for some of us, just even to have your own head above water, never mind lift someone else's head above water, it can be a bit difficult. Go and be my carriers of good news of Jesus. And when we maybe even in our own lives aren't experiencing the good news of Jesus ourselves. I like what Puma shared with us on Wednesday night. The fact that this guy, he just so oozed the presence of the Lord that it really attracted Puma to give his life to Jesus. And, And There was something special about that. And there is something special about that. As I was preparing this part of our message, I felt, you know, God showed me this picture of a pool, a swimming pool, with maybe 20 or 30 people in it. And uh, and I'm standing on the side of the pool, and all these people are just barely bobbing up and down. And they're, if they're left there, they're going to drown. And I'm not a strong swimmer at all. And, and just with this, this call upon my life, you need to go and rescue these people. And I'm saying back, there's no point in me going to rescue them. I can hardly swim myself. 
I think I'm going to go, if I, if I try, I'll go under the water myself. And that's what I got the sense of what it was like for these disciples. They were standing there in one hand going, what on earth's going on? And in the other hand holding on to this great commission. But Acts 1 verse 4, and I think this is where the message needs to land for us today. In Acts 1 verse 4, Jesus uses a small word that I believe changes everything for these men. He uses the word wait. And over the last, um, I would say since Christmas, I have really sensed that in my spirit, God speaking to me, myself. Wait. Wait for the promise of God. You know, waiting isn't a natural thing. It's actually very unnatural to any of us. None of us like to wait. We live in an impatient world where, a bit like those disciples in, in Luke chapter, chapter 9, we, are, we do not have much patience to wait for things or wait on people. Our tolerance levels, our tolerance levels are extremely, we live in a society where our extra tolerance levels are extremely low. You want to test it out? Go into a shop and stand in a queue for a few moments. And not alone feel what rises up within you. Listen to the people around you. A good way to test is, uh, is your tolerance level is if B- BT hasn't connected your broadband or your broadband's been off for a day. Unbelievable. Unreal. It's unreal. What about if somebody mistakenly takes some money out of your bank account and you're waiting for them to put it back. The abuse the person on the other side of the phone gets is something else. What about in our finances? What about our finances? Because most of us are struggling with some form of debt. Neil gave out that prophetic word at the beginning of the year. But most of us are struggling with some sort of financial or debt or whatever because we haven't had patience to wait to save up for the thing that we want to buy. We want everything instant. We get ourselves into debt. What about waiting for a specific answer on something? Like we go to the doctor and we have a problem and the doctor says, I need to run some tests and so maybe come back in a week or two. Well, none of us have time to wait. So we're, on, we're home and we're on to Mr. Google and we have ourselves diagnosed and we know how long we're going to, how long we've left to live. That's what we do. None of us have a, 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 an ability to wait. I find it in my work environment. Someone sends you an email, you don't respond to the afternoon. It's terrible. They, they don't want to do business with you anymore because they can't wait. Even in our conversations with people, we don't have a desire to wait. We don't have a desire to hear what your side of the story is. We don't have a desire to hear what's going on. And so what we do is we come to a quick conclusion of whatever the problem, whatever the situation is, we stick a label on it and, uh, and we, we, sell, we diagnose the wrong problem. But Jesus said to the disciples, he said, you know what? Wait. Wait. 
that word wait is uh, a Greek word, and because, uh, because I'm not good at Greek, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. But I did look up what the meaning of it is. It says to endure, to remain steady and secure in light of obstacles, forces, pressures, and demands around us. Does anybody ever feel that there's demands all around you? Does anybody ever feel that there's pressures all around you? Does anybody ever feel that there's an obstacle ahead of you? And Jesus says, wait. But we're so busy, we're so self-centered, we're so self-focused, we're so impatient, we're so distracted. We either have two things. We have either never been taught that waiting is part of the kingdom, or the second is we have lost the ability to wait. And yet the Bible is full of this word, wait, 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 wait. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see that the disciples did what Jesus, in spite of all their difficulties, in spite of their pressures, in spite of their demands, we see that they took on the posture of waiting. And when they did, What Jesus said in verse 8, he said, wait, and you will receive, and when you receive, you will be. Wait and receive. When you wait, the power of God. Wait for the promise of God. And when you wait, the power of God will come, and you will be my witnesses. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it tells us that's exactly what they did. The power of God came upon them. That's what happened, sorry. The power of God came upon them. You know, when the power of God came upon them, it didn't say, now you go and you have to do my witnessing. It says, when the power of God comes upon you, you will be my witness. That day we read that there was people from every nation in Jerusalem. And their commission was to go and be disciples in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And guess what God does? He just goes and brings all the parts of the world to them. And they get filled with the Holy Spirit. They go out, and they live out the Great Commission there and then. It never says that their trials or their difficulties got any easier. But something special was deposited in them as they waited. It gave them courage and boldness uh, for the day ahead. And I don't think the, the promise is any different today. We can recite, we can sing many, many songs. We can recite many, many verses with the word wait. But the difficulty is they're words and songs. They're not practices of our lives. There's not much written about waiting on God. I, I googled it. Maybe I wasn't right to Google it, but I did Google it. But I did find a guy called Andrew Murray. And uh, he's back, he died back in the early 1900s. And he's written devotionals on waiting for God. And I have downloaded one now on my phone and I read it every day. But what he said in, in one of his devotionals was good. In waiting on him, we find rest and joy and strength. 
and the supply of every need. In waiting for him, we shall find rest. Anybody need their batteries recharged? Anybody need a bit of rest? Anybody need a bit of joy? Anybody need some strength? Anybody need some supply for their need? Well, in waiting for him, we will find all these things. And as I say, I don't think it's any different today, but we need to learn to take on the practice of waiting. Ten years ago, Ronnie preached a sermon, and he said, in, in his sermon, he said, waiting time is not wasted time. And waiting on God should not be wasted time. It's a time when God wants to develop our character. He wants to reveal himself to us. And so in my waiting time, I have found that there's three things that really help me. And I think it's important I just share them today. One is the meditating on Scripture. Notice I didn't say the reading of Scripture. The Bible, we're to meditate on Scripture. It comes, first Paul Smith. It wouldn't be a good sermon, Paul, if I didn't have a farming analogy in it. But it comes, the word meditate comes from the word ruminate. And to ruminate comes from the way a cow digests her food. And, um, and what a cow, a cow has four stomachs. And if you put a cow out to the field, what the cow will do, will, she will eat everything around her until she nearly bursts and fills that first stomach. It's her, it's her biggest of stomach. And then what she does, which I think is extremely important for us to hear, is she goes off into a quiet place, usually a quiet place, lies down and rests, and then brings that food back up and chews it. Sounds a bit gross, but that's the way she does it. And she brings that food back up and chews through it. And she does that through the process of of her four stomachs until the food and her become one. Isn't that a lovely picture? When did we met? When do, how, like I, I have always been taught in my walk with Christ to read Scripture. Read it, but there's a difference in reading and meditating on it, allowing it to become what a part of your of your, who you are. You know, we're obsessed by image. We live in a world that's obsessed by image. You know, image doesn't come. Image just just doesn't come from what we do or what we have. Sometimes image can come from a certain theology we have or a certain doctrine we have or even a certain old wives tale or family heirloom that we have picked up on our way. And what this image can do if we are trying to live up to it. Do you know what? Let me just interject with this. To stand on your tippy toes takes an awful energy takes a lot of energy. I'm not sure. I, I tried Mr. Google again to see how long someone can stand on their tippy toes. Ladies, you in high heels, you can tell me how long you can stand on your tippy toes. And to stand on your feet takes a lot less energy. And just as I was writing that, I got this picture, and I don't know whether it's for someone here, but you're standing on your tippy toes. 
you're living up to someone's expectation. You're living up to some old wives' tale, some doctrine that you think that you need to carry on or some theology. You know, Jesus doesn't just tell us just to stand on our feet. He actually tells us to sit at his feet. And if we are going to be more like Christ, we need to have a God-shaped identity. I love the words in Colossians 3 verse 16. It says, let, let the word of God dwell in you richly. And so what the word of God does in these times of waiting, it reminds me, it shapes me, and it equips me. What does it equip me for? Well, it's for the second thing, the second element that I do in my waiting time. It equips me for prayer. You know, as I said earlier, there's so many things that are telling us what, what we should do, what we, how we should function, how, what we're entitled to, what is my rights. If anybody who knows me knows I hate those last two things, an entitlement mentality or what my rights are as a Christian. When you become a Christian, you have no rights because you die in Christ. And I see that in the life of Christ, but that's just by the way. And uh, so what, what Scripture helps me to do is helps me to focus on who he is in my prayer time and helps me to see who I am as a child of God. Sometimes my prayer life, let me tell you what my prayer life can look like. Sometimes my prayer life is a quiet weeping or sobbing before God. Sometimes it's a cry of desperation. And sometimes my prayer life can be on this side, and it can be a jumping from the rooftops, a worshipping and a praising. I don't do it nakedly, but like David, that was David, and, but a jumping and a joyful time. And sometimes my prayer life can be anything in between that. Just reminding God of what he's spoken and who he is and who I am called to be. Maybe you're in a season of, your, of, of life that you need to start praying back some of God's promises that he has promised to you back to him. And I find praying God's word back to him not alone helps me but encourages me like what it did for David. The third thing that I have found helpful in my waiting time is listening. Oftentimes in great trials um, or deep situations, all I find is it takes one word or one divine idea to unlock the situation. It seems to be able to seems unable to be resolved or sorted out. Maybe it's a, a, a period of dryness in your life. And, um, and sometimes God can just drop a word into your spirit, a picture or, or an idea. And, uh, and, but I find that for him to do that, we, we don't have time really to listen, do we? It's not the first place that we go to, quietness. Even in the church, we don't do that well. We don't do, within our church settings, we don't do quietness and stillness uh, very well. There are many, many things, including this one thing that's in my pocket, 
that invade the quiet time with God. There's always distractions around us, isn't there? There's many distractions that want to rob us and steal us of that place of listening to God. And we read that Jesus withdrew. We read that many times, even in the times of revival, even in the times that it seemed like it was all happening for the kingdom. He withdrew to quiet places. And why did he do that? Because he realized in himself he needed to hear from the Father. He says, I only do that but what the Father has called me to do. He said that in John 5. And in order to know God's agenda, he had to keep withdrawing. Listening realigns our hearts with his. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay that if you need to listen to God, that you take time away and rest. It's okay to rest, you know. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad word. But somewhere in our theology, we, have, we think now it's a bad word to rest. Julie wrote this during the week and put it out on our, on our WhatsApp, and I felt it was very important for me. There's hardly ever a complete silence in our soul. God is whispering to us, well nigh incessantly. I have no idea what well nigh incessantly meant, so I Google it. God is whispering almost continually and constantly. Whenever the sounds of the world die out in the soul or sink low, then we hear the whispering of God. He's always whispering to us, only we don't hear because of the noise, hurry, and distraction of life. Which causes, which life causes as it rushes on. He wants to speak to us. And so in waiting, I am reminded of who he is and, and who I am in Christ. In waiting, like King David, it often leads to a place of rededication. In Psalm 130, verse 5, David writes this. He said, I waited for the Lord with my whole being. I waited for the Lord with my whole being. And in his word, I put my hope. That was at a time when David had committed sin with Bathsheba and he had fallen so far away from God. And God came as he repented. God came and took him back. And David goes on to write in that psalm in verse 8. He said, he not only redeemed me, and he not only brought me back, but he brought Israel back too, meaning the people that he was associated every day, his neighbors. Waiting helps me to realign my life with God's call. Waiting reveals the promise and the will of God. Waiting in waiting, I receive from God. Just as I wrote that this morning again, I sensed that, like a lawn, a garden, and there's an area in the garden that has been trampled and worn down, and so the grass doesn't really live, you know, live there anymore, or not a lot of grass. And so, what a good gardener does, he doesn't just come out and dig it up; he comes out and just each step sows a little seed over it and allows the seed to germinate and come back to life again. 
And sometimes we need to do that. We need to just wait and be still before the Lord and allow him to replant or reseed new things in our lives. And finally, waiting empowers us to be the witnesses that we are called to be. There's no shortcut in the process. And if we are to be all that God has called us to be, then we need to enter a period of waiting. Maybe we need, sorry, I should say, to enter a period of waiting and allow God's power to flow through our lives. Be the neighbors that God has called us to be. Not alone be the neighbors, but maybe you need to wait where you're at in your life at the moment. Maybe you've been busy trying to sort everything out. Maybe you have been like those people in the swimming pool trying to just get your head above water. I'm teaching Amelia, or I was teaching Amelia how to swim, not very successfully. And I was teaching her about floating. And the idea of floating is the stiller you can be, the better you can float. And, uh, and so sometimes in our waiting, we need to do that. There's lots more that I could say our time's gone. But I want to encourage you, if you are in that season that it feels like you're waiting, or maybe just God's highlighted that to you today, don't be afraid of that place. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be one bit afraid of it. Because as we wait upon God, he renews our strength. Isaiah 49 says, Those who trust or wait or hope in God, will never, ever, ever be disappointed. Paul's going to come and play. Um, and, uh, and so what we thought of, we're just going to, Paul's just going to play for a few moments and just allow God just to maybe settle that in our hearts and then we're going to sing maybe one or two songs just to finish up our time. Is that okay? And if you feel that you'd like to come forward for prayer or I'm not going to be at the front, I'll be halfway down the church and um, that's all right.